Hello and welcome to episode 19 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. Welcome to episode 19 of the Data-Driven Security Podcast. My name is Jay Jacobs, and joining me as usual is Bob Rudis. Bob, how are you this evening? Uh, sober. Okay. But that's kind of always the case when we're podcasting. Right, so. yeah. Or it's kind of always the case, pretty much. I kind of we, don't, we don't go around uh, saying, well, what are you drinking tonight, Bob? Yeah, sort of a bo- boring, data-driven lifestyle we sort of have. So. Well, I'm drinking water. By the bucket load. Um, I got some kombucha. That's got like 1% alcohol. But Oh, I didn't know that. Well, it's the good ones do anyway. The, the normal ones oh, have like, okay. point, like 0.5 or whatever. But yeah. Sure. So uh, that was more social introduction than we've done in many, many in episodes. Well, that just shows how relaxed we are from taking the summer off. Yeah. Yeah, we did take the summer off. We had about two months off of the podcast there. And uh, I think we're back now. I mean, school's getting back up you know, for the kids and stuff. And uh, I think we're going to see a couple episodes pretty quick here. And uh, we're back in the swing of things. And so while we're talking about the the back in the swing of things, though, if anybody listening uh, either does data-driven security, has some interest or has some topic that you think would be interesting or know somebody that might make a good candidate, definitely reach out to Bob or I and say, you know, hey, I know this guy, or I know this person, or, uh, you know, I want to talk about this. Would this be interesting? Uh, I think, uh, you know, we've got uh, we've got people we want to bring on, but we're always looking for new and, and interesting people or even halfway interesting people, I mean, we, you know. So I, if you... I, I, I would argue that if you can at least even spell data-driven security, you should contact us. <laughs> we got to be careful what we say here. So, uh, and uh, people should be able to reach us. You know, we're on Twitter. We're on uh, dds.info. Uh, there is a very high probability with high confidence as well, too, around that, that if they are listening to this podcast, they know how to find us. Yeah, we are, we are not exactly hidden. So, uh, Bob, one of the things that you've been doing, especially uh, on our little hiatus here, is cranking out our packages. And and when I say cranking out, I mean like mass production of our packages, specifically a lot of security packages, a lot of non-security too. Uh, and one of the one of the creations of this summer is our OpenSec. Do you want to introduce that and talk about what that is and the concept behind it? Yeah, because it's a good precursor to the our secret surprise guest that we have on on today's episode. But the the goal here is right. So uh, up until the past maybe eighteen you know twenty odd months since we we've had data driven security the book out, the R R has not exactly been the place where you know security geeks hang out. You know it it it's it's sort of that like upscale high high fine dining restaurant of security people versus like right. the low end gutter that Pythoners hang out. And um, so, so really, it was in need of some serious tooling if we wanted to start working with security data w- w- within it. And 
you know, to, to that end, you know, since we started this whole thing, it's, I sort of seemed like we felt like I felt a little responsible um, as part of this to, to make sure we had enough of those things out there. And you know, our guest is somewhat of a kindred spirit with that. Cause he actually cranks out the R packages and some security related to as you're going to find out, but you know, to make it easier, uh, we're going to start posting some links about, and, you know, really just kind of jump on the whole R open sec bandwagon, which is basically if you have anything that relates to processing security data, and it's using R, or there's an R interface to something else that actually works with security data. Uh, we, you have a home, and we'll be glad to put it in there, and 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 either you know bring it under the fold of the R OpenSec organization under GitHub, or, and and or just kind of link to it or for fork the repo or whatever. Uh, but we have everything in there, ranging from you know a relatively new um, a modern HoneyNet package. Uh, all the way to basically being able to work with uh, you know TCP/IP pack and 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 UDP packet pa packet captures, um, you know from PCAPs, a brand new updated sh uh, Shodan library, which actually works really well. We had a blog post on that not not too long ago that actually interfaced the Shodan output with the uh, yeah. Leaflet library, um, which a lot of people really seem to like a lot. So you you can kind of do something on there. But th there's a whole bunch of stuff in there. Um, some of them are actually core R packages. I was I say core like they're not part of base or anything, but um, you know, you've got the OpenSSL package, which has been around in R for a long time, the PKI package, which does a fine implementation of, of the X5509 standard and a bunch of others. And, and our guest has a bunch of others too, which he's gonna actually talk about, so I, I, I won't steal his thunder for there. Um, but really, you know, we're linking to more from in there, basically forking the repos, but we'll, we'll be glad to host them as well too. So, you know, a, along with just talking about being on the show here, if you've got anything like that or wanna start working in those things, take a look at some of the code there, because a lot of this stuff is just kind of making API access in R to a lot of security services that are out there. And again, the more that that is in there with R, the less you have to kind of, you know, make features in some other program to do data science in R with and kind of keep everything, you know, kind of unified under one umbrella. So it's, it's I think it's just, it's a great thing. You know, Veris R is the packet that, that, that Jay wrote for the book and also for, for the DBIR. Uh, that That's coming in there soon as he's, you think he's nearly done, you think you you are nearly done revamping that one, right? It It is done, it's just not in the uh, in the head of the uh, branch there gotcha gotcha and we and we really should try to get that on cran not not just because of the fact that it's in the book but just because it's a really useful tool to work with various data yeah yes it is definitely yeah and that'll be uh yeah i'll have to work that in between podcasts and, and other events yeah the, the the one thing that i will put out as another call for for folks is um if you happen to be really good at compiling stuff um I, under the alternate tool chains you know so not 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 the microsoft stuff but the other you know the other open source compilers under microsoft um and or even have our experience doing that there's a number of c packages that that both our guests and i have been putting out there and we both don't do them those we 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 really we, we make no bones about that and the it would if you would have any of that experience and want to lend a hand there we could really use that and you will so get promoted like heck from us and we'll give you a free copy of the book give you a free copy of the dbir and print everything whatever whatever you want um but yeah it would it would be a big help if we have any really hard hardcore one of those folks out there to give us a hand with that But enough about us, it's time to introduce our guest, uh, Oliver Keyes from the Wikimedia Foundation. We're just gonna jump right in and we'll let him talk about uh, who he is and what he does and why we're talking to someone from the Wikimedia Foundation about data-driven security. 
Oliver, welcome to the show. And I'm curious, as I think all of our listeners are going to be, to you know discover exactly where you work and, and what you do. Because it can't be that you just work on creating our packages all day. It, it would be really nice if it was. Um, some, some utopian day, that will be my job. And, and no doubt I'll get imposter syndrome and decide I'm bad at it. Um, I work at the Wikimedia Foundation, the nonprofit that runs Wikipedia. On paper, I'm a human-computer interaction researcher. I study how humans behave on the internet, which is the boring kind of human-computer interaction. Some of my friends get to build robots for NASA. In practice, I do pretty much anything that needs to be done because there aren't that many of us. Uh, Wikipedia is a top 10 site with 200 people. So, so I do research. I also build the tools needed to get at the data and pass the data and manage the data and everything else. It's, it's an interesting job with no, no two days in a row alike. And, and you do some security. So j just since we are the you know, data science podcast, you actually end up doing some security as part of your work then too, right? Yeah, um, incidentally and deliberately. Uh, so by incidentally, I mean um, a lot of the data sets I have to deal with are precisely the same data sets that concern security researchers in a lot of areas, right? Access logs of all stripes and all types. Getting that data, turning it into a usable format, and you know, being able to do stuff with the columns like geolocate things or pass URLs or work out what user agents are. Um, and then deliberately, we have a very, very strong commitment to privacy as an organization. So making sure that all the data is locked down really, really tightly. If anything is released, it's anonymized very strongly, that kind of thing. And at the same time, because we lack frameworks for doing a lot of basic things, a ton of questions I try and answer are the same as security researchers for a similar purpose. As a good example of this, our API doesn't, have, doesn't require access keys of any type. It also doesn't require rate limiting of any type. So a lot of the work I do is sort of trying to identify um, outliers or examples of data sets we have where the data has been intentionally manipulated by automated agents from outside and working out where that's happening and when that's happening in a way that doesn't require me to manually hand code a billion uh, log requests every day. So, so do you actually end up interfacing just with like raw files, or do you hit like you know do you have like giant central log stores, or like you know how how since it's since it is you know the Wikimedia Foundation, this scale must be fairly huge. Oh yeah, um, we get 125,000 requests every second or minute. I could never remember, and I sort of end up dealing with both logs. Uh, so. We have the past logs, which are great. Those are stored in a big HDFS cluster that we have, and that's got everything. And then we've got one to 1,000 sample files uh, just stored as tabled TSVs, unquoted, unsanitized, un-everything. And depending on the task, you might want to have use, be using one set of files, you might want to be using another. If the cluster is particularly overloaded, there's a load of regular queries running, use the sampled logs. If you want a job to run every day without falling over, use the cluster. So yeah, it's it's both is the answer. Do you have to do you have to touch like Excel files and things like that too, or do you just kind of get to work with like the Wikimedia server data? Most of the time, uh, I've managed to stay clear of Excel. There have been some interesting occasions involving um, PowerPoint and people expecting me to do things in PowerPoint. But yeah, mostly it's mostly it's raw access logs. Which is nice in a way in that it was designed by people who cared about it not being very difficult to deal with. Um, in other ways, it's more of a problem. You can't store complex data in it. When we have stored complex data in it, it becomes a devil of a time to sort of handle the file accurately and pass it. 
And and you don't just work with that on kind of the back end and do like cool like data science stuff. You actually like do some dashboard dashboarding and stuff too, right? Yes. When I said I did everything that needs being done because there's not many of us, I meant it. So yeah, I to to actually let's use the example of the dashboards to demonstrate this. So we've got a set of dashboards for the search team, which is the team I work on at the moment. They're written in uh, R as a shiny application. Um, they work pretty pretty well. Uh, and then there's a back end of a mix of R and Python, depending on the task. So my job was first write big bits of Java in our HDFS cluster so that the data could be extracted, then write R scripts which call it and save the data in a common format, then write the dashboards and then do things with the results on the dashboards and present them and so on and so forth. Um, so it's every step of the process, which makes for some interesting times and is probably responsible for my sort of contributions to the wider R community being all over the place. So, Alar, how did you get into this job? How did you get into working with data like that and, and fall into it and, and R and all of that good stuff? How did you get here, basically? Through a fairly weird path. Um, so I started off as a lawyer in the UK, and, and then when I was in a particular moment of sort of idle, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, why did I decide to do this, I got a phone call from the head of engineering at Wikimedia um, because I'd been volunteering for the org since I was 15 or so. And they were like, we need a community manager in engineering. We don't have one. You sort of understand how the community works because you're in it. Would you like to do this job? And I signed up to do the job, and I did it for about two years. And towards the end of my tenure, we ended up running into... Um, throughput problems, namely that we had in the entire organization a researcher. And when you've got like five engineering teams and one researcher, it's kind of hard to get their time for understanding the implications of the product you're launching or understanding the data around um, what people are doing with it. So I was like, okay, we need to be performing this analysis. There isn't anyone to perform this analysis. Sod it. I have no life. I will learn how to perform this analysis. Um, and so on about it was October of 2013. I, I started digging into R. I signed up for Roger Peng's uh, Coursera course, of all things, and, and ended up digging into the language and how to do analysis in it and you know, get data out and graph it and all the rest. I, it constantly amazes me that I've continued doing it for this amount of time and that people turned around and looked at the stuff I was doing and went, you're actually pretty good at this. Maybe we should just make this your job instead of, instead of talking to people. But it's it's a place I'm comfortable to be in, I guess. So I guess one thing that I'm curious about is, you know, so you've got log stuff at scale. You're you're looking at different types of logs and as as one of the primary things that you do and for different stuff. For a lot of security folk, and I know you're not just just a security person, but even non-security folk, this is almost the thing these days. Their their go-to tool isn't going to be R. Right, and more more often than not, it's going to be what I like to call the the Excel of log data science, which is Splunk. Why are instead of like a Splunk type thing to to do that, or even some of the other things that layer on top of HDFS and do kind of streaming based analysis? They like you know what what drove you more towards R than those other tools? Um, a couple of things. One of them is simply background. So I started off using R, which was fine because I was dealing with relatively static MySQL tables, right? It was editor data, not reader data. So it's on a much smaller scale. And so when it came to uh, sort of transitioning into access logs and reader-centric stuff, it was a lot less effort to uh, take the tools I already had and adapt them 
than it was to learn an entirely new set of tools. There's this idea that uh, you know transitioning between tools is relatively seamless. Um, I think this is, I, I think it has the possibility to be, but in practice, when you're transitioning not because you enjoy it, but because it's your job, you don't have that option. I, I would, it, it may be the case that I could get things sort of done better with Splunk or with Python. Nobody was willing to give me sort of two weeks of not asking me things so that I could learn my way around Splunk or Python. Um, so everything sort of had to be gradually accreted and learned as I went. And then the second reason is, is simply, um, it, it gives you the whole hog, right? If I want to, if I use uh, Python for a thing, then I can, or like a HDFS streaming thing that plugs into Python or plugs into Scala or plugs into Java, that's great. I end up getting out the data and then I have to transfer it to something completely different for the visualization or for the statistical analysis or for both. The advantage that R gives you, I guess, is R is not great at all the things. There are some things, particularly scalar operations or streaming data, that it sucks at tremendously. But it's very, very difficult to find a thing you want to do in R and not have a way of doing it. And, and even if you have to end up building that too, right? Yeah, in a couple of cases. But hey, it was fun. And actually, speaking of that, as building stuff because you don't have it, um, you and actually you and Bob, both of you, have been producing a lot of R packages recently. And Oliver, could you talk through some of your recent packages and some of the cool things that you've added to the community? Sure. Um, some of these aren't necessarily recent. They're just things I've been working on that I'm particularly proud of. So one of them is uh, URL tools, which is a package for URL handling. It's got an encoder, a decoder, a parser that breaks down the URLs into their IETF um, components. It's designed to operate in a vectorized way. It's designed to operate on scale, and it's designed to be very, very fast. So um, R, by default, does not have a parser of any kind, and its decoder and encoder are scalar and have a lot of interesting bugs in them. They're slow as hell. Um, URL tools is primarily written in C++ with just an R front end. Um, and the consequence of this is that if you want to uh, decode or encode a URL, with URL tools, you can do it 700 times faster than in base R on scale, and four times faster than Python on the same scale. And it's that, that second metric I'm particularly proud of because there's the the people who, who treat it like a conflict, I guess, between the two languages are always talking about how Python has speed on its side. And this isn't actually necessarily the case if you write clever code. The other things I've been working on are web tools, which is a package. It wraps around Hadley Wickham's reader for fast, you know, file reading. Um, it's optimized for web access log formats. So if you've got a common log format file or a squid log format file or any of those variants, there is a function that already knows what the fields are going to be called, how they're delimited, how to split things up, everything else. There's also rgeolocate, which takes a vector of IP addresses and geolocates them against the MaxMind binary files, which are fairly standard, or against a variety of web APIs. Um, and then there's IP tools, which I'd be working on with Bob, which is um, uh, IP handling functions. So things like, is this a valid IP? Is it an IPv4 or an IPv6 IP? Is this uh, within this certain range? Is this, how, how do I, um, I have an exported for field. How do I get the like earliest valid IP out of that for geolocation? That sort of operation. Those are the things I've been working on recently. I'm currently this weekend actually in a massive refactor of a couple of them to try and make the sort of general space of handling access log data in R more consistent. Um, because previously a couple of them were sort of cobbled together. 
And URL tools um, has a bit, like I think it's got a com many or most of the components from Jay's uh, TLD extract package too, right? Yes, um, which was, was great to include. I, I think actually uh, we included it via a, a GitHub issue I opened, which had something like, uh, together we could be stronger than we are apart, or something similarly, you know, ominously supervillain. Yeah. And thanks for putting that in there. It's a, it's a good addition. No problem. It's it's good functionality to have. In fact, credit goes to you for um, the way in which you wrote it. I think I told you this, but um, I tried re-implementing the same functionality in C++ rather than implementing it in R as you have, and the fastest I could get it was five times as slow as TLD expected. <laughs> there was a little bit of effort I put into the uh, efficiency of that thing. So. Yeah, it's it's very well optimized for large vectorized operations. That's yeah, great. thank you. Um, so you're, there was also some chatter that we've had on the side, uh, and I don't know if you want to talk about this publicly, but uh, uh, trying to look at text uh, manipulation, text handling, NLP type things. Do you want to talk about what you're working on in that space? Sure. Um, it's, it's fairly low, sort of early and inchoate at the moment, although I've grabbed a couple of collaborators who know a lot more about sort of, um, you know, latent data trick analysis than I do, um, which is always good. Admittedly, this covers pretty much anyone, but in this case, they actually know what they're doing. There's, in R, we have this TM package, which is sort of a standardized package for text mining. It's good for what it is, but it has sort of a lot of legacy elements from the R environment as it stood in sort of 2005 to 2008. Heavy use of custom uh, classes and object types, which makes it difficult to nest calls, not great documentation, um, an overt focus on like turning things into these special objects that you can't use to interact with the rest of R. One of the things I'm doing is writing a package which I've sort of called in my head TM2, not because it's a successor necessarily, but just because it really guarantees getting people excited about it if they've had to use TM, which breaks this down into what it actually should be, which is a corpus is a vector, and that's it. And then word stemming built in from the get-go, white space trimming built in from the get-go, everything based on compiled code, everything very, very optimized to try and get it as fast as it can possibly be over large corpora. And, and you're, of course, going to break the, the two lowercase functionality you know, a year after you release the TM2 package, right? <laughs> no, I'm going to call it like text miner or something. Yeah, um, no, it, it's just uh, like the, the one of the, the pet peeves in the past, I guess, nine months with TM, is at some point last year they they changed the way that they actually worked with normal normal functions in R that handle character vectors. Like before, you could have just called like two lower, just like you would have called remove stop words, and now you have to actually like wrap that with another function so it turns it into a function that can. So oh, I, it, wow. it, yeah, oh, it's, they thought like a, a almost a math function for yeah. performing. Yeah. yeah, it's terrible. So like yeah, it's the, this is you know like I I think you'll get a standing ovation at at any. Our conference, if you actually manage to pull this off. Yeah, yeah definitely. It's, it's not the first thing on my plate, but it's the thing I'm really excited about. The first thing on my plate actually is um, SCP SCP bindings in R. You're, oh, so you're still so you're still going to work on that? Yeah, um, although probably port it to uh, sort of native C rather than C because it just makes passing things around a lot easier. The um, and actually speaking of R conferences, you just came back from Use R, right? Mm. Can, can, can you talk, so most folks that listen to our podcast probably have no idea that like there is an R conference, let alone that there's a giant one that's held every year. So can, can you talk a little bit about Use R as well as kind of what you were doing there and maybe even some of your thoughts on it, you know, because like you actually got to be there firsthand. Some pretty interesting things were announced this year. Mm -hmm. I'm just kind of curious from a firsthand view, like what, what you thought. 
Sure. Um, so USAR, for people who aren't familiar with it, is um, the annual R conference. It's been held every year since, I think we're up to like year 11 or year 13 now, it's one of those. This year is in Aalborg in uh, Denmark, hosted at their cultural center, which was really fascinating because the writer of RCPP ran into Sting in the lift. That was the most interesting part of the entire weekend, to be honest. But from an R-point nerd's point of view, it was a tremendously fascinating conference. So it's 650 people from you know all fields, industry and academia, um, everything from I encountered an electrical engineer to um, biostatisticians to web analysts, all sort of noodling on ideas and presenting and trying to work out what we can do to push the language forward. Um, and it was preceded by the R Summit in Copenhagen, which is the our foundation's sort of core developer group getting together with other interesting people and, and talking about what they're working on next. And as a consequence of this, when you get to USAR, there's um, a lot of really, really smart people working on interesting things and also digesting sort of the latest announcements of big changes in the R world because they're so tightly linked. I haven't been to a previous USAR, so I can't say how it compares to other conferences in that sphere. I was very impressed with how well the conference was pulled off. There were some things that, that I would change, but they were my, mainly minor niggles about like name badges and how awkward they always are at every conference I go to. It was really, really well executed. It was incredibly well put together and timetabled. There wasn't enough air conditioning. Those are my sort of main recollections from the actual conference. But I thought the uh, organizers did a fantastic job. I was there to present a piece of research I've been doing with Jenny Bryan and David Robinson on software engineering standards in the R package community, namely there aren't any, which was pretty fun and made extra interesting by me losing my laptop and thus needing to ad-lib for 15 minutes in front of a blank screen in front of the R core team. They didn't actually hate it. Which That's great. <laughs> um, there were actually some people who came up to me afterwards and were like, I, I thought that not having slides was an improvement because that way people have to focus on what you're saying. And then the big announcement that sort of everyone was working on was the announcement of the uh, R consortium, which is a group of sort of industry giants who are interested in R, so Revolution Analytics, Mango Solutions, and R Studio from the R world and then uh, Microsoft and similar organizations from more of the industrial side. A sort of a wrapper around the R Foundation to handle, I'm sort of mentally thinking of it as the stuff the Python for Software Foundation handles that the R Foundation doesn't. So providing general drive and what the, what the ecosystem will look like, identifying like particular needs that the community has or that their subset of the community has, that kind of, and, and putting effort into it, that kind of thing. Um, actually providing some funding and resourcing to the things that we've been doing. And so I spent my weekend sort of thinking on that and and trying to not to let, let myself get distracted by thinking on that. So I have a, I have a question, and Bob, maybe you can answer this too after, after Oliver, because you would fall in this boat too, but... I mean, Oliver, you you're very very active, right? And you're you're writing these packages, and you know you mentioned before you've been working at Wikimedia that you were a big part of the community there and things like that. So you're you're out in the community and you're doing stuff and you're you're contributing back to this larger group, right? What makes you so passionate? And I think a lot of listeners may ask, how can they get some? <laughs> um, what makes me so passionate? Uh... It depends if you ask me on a day when my imposter syndrome is kicking up or um, a day when it isn't. If it's kicking up, the answer is uh, a bit of me is worried I might be a narcissist. I'm pretty sure that's not the case, but it's always a fear. More practically, it's I don't see the point of doing anything different. 
like my background has always been working in a wider sphere. From the age of 15, I started working on Wikipedia and, and being part of, as you said, like community-based movements. And I don't see the point of doing anything different. I don't see why you would write a tool for your use case and then not put it out there unless you're restricted by, you know, NDAs or whatever, in which case, fair enough. Um, but there are, there are, there's a, a rule I try and adhere to, which is I am not that original a person. Like, I'm reasonably smart. I'm not a genius. I'm not a tremendously original human being. I'm not pushing forward the boundaries of science and solving problems that have never been solved before. And that's not a put down because what that means is the stuff I'm working on that I find hard that I need to build tools to deal with, other people somewhere are probably working on too. And if I throw these tools out there, then their life is a bit easier and they can focus on the actual science. And Bob, yeah, do you have anything to like answer to that? Yeah, actually, that's that's strikingly similar to, to myself as well. I mean, I uh, along with doing you know packagey stuff and we're almost I, I, I think I challenged uh, Oliver to a package war a, a couple of weeks ago but I, I think a lot of it is is similar to that and like I also do a lot of stuff on Stack Overflow too just because yeah, I, I pick and choose on Stack Overflow just trying to help people that are genuinely trying to seek help versus just trying to get you to write code for them for free but it's it's more of like it, the, by helping the community you are really advancing stuff. Like by answering one of the questions on Stack Overflow, I helped a cancer researcher, like directly helped a cancer researcher do his job better, identify things better, and communicate his results better. Um, that's that's kind of all, all awesome there. And by actually making packages that help other people do communication better, it touches a ton of fields that are often days feel more relevant than the, the one I'm actually in, because uh, InfoSec just seems to be screwed up. I know every field is screwed up, but you know, like, you know, being actually in it every day, you, you get to see how, how good or bad it is. Um, and then things come along, like uh, you know, this week, um, uh, Kyle Walker, I think he's from Texas Christian, um, he's been doing a lot with geo-based stuff, and he released a new package that layers on top of the the Tiger data, you know, all of the U.S. Tiger data sets, you know, all the shape files and data that that come with that. And it's actually going to be a really great package because he's he's really identified an area where there was I think three or four different ways to do it in R, but not they're all kind of clued you before. So he's he's doing that, and I'm like, well, this is a good thing because it's going to actually help a lot of people do this analysis better and communicate things better. So like I jumped on that uh, over the weekend just because it's going to be a, a a better thing as well. And I've I've actually talked with Oliver too. I I really think all of the spatial stuff in R needs. What, what I would call a, a Hadley-like rewrite, you know, to make it more logical and more modern R feel to them and maybe not completely redo it from the C, you know, C, C++, C or C++, but at least make it more logical in the way it operates. Uh, almost like the first way that that the, the RVEST package kind of worked before how they wrote XML too. So I, I just think it helps a wider range of people. And I, I think one thing that I like, and I, I, I'm, I this will go in right with another question I wanted to ask Oliver too, but I think it also helps people do stuff in R because one thing that I and you know I'm I, I'm kind of an R nut I may be more of an R nut than, than Oliver or maybe we're, we're, we're about equal on it but I I find R lets you focus on the solution like versus like the like the what of the solution versus the how of the solution like you I, I at least find that you don't have to work on the minutiae of trying to force something to be Pythonic with all of its brackets and stuff 
um, and you get to actually just work on trying to solve whatever the problem is that you're having in R because it tends to flow more naturally once you understand how R works. And may maybe for some of the people that are really embedded in the Python community, that's the way that, that it looks to them and Julia, whatever. I'm not, I'm not trying to start a language war. Um, but I, I just think that you can focus on it a lot more if you have all these other stuff better. Just like Oliver was saying about the text mining package, you know, if that was made more uniform and, and worked better with the way that native R handles objects, that's going to help a lot of people out, and that's going to really advance some of the data science you can layer on top of that with the late virtually allocate, you know, all that kind of stuff that's out there. It's going to be pretty cool. So, so the questions, um, so, so, so I guess like I lied about not starting a language or so. Do you do everything in R? Do, do you do stuff in Python? I mean, like, I, I know that even in the past three or four weeks, there's been the attempt at a revival on the Twitters and the data science Twitters, which is like, what, 12 people. But for 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 for, for the whole R versus Python stuff, like, people do those spurious, useless posts every so often. And I'm just curious about your philosophy of, like, do everything in R, or do you use the tool that's the right tool for the job kind of a thing? Yeah. Data science is a wide field and a wide community, and the only people it shouldn't contain are people who attempt to artificially narrow who can be a part of it. That, that's my wider philosophy there. If, if you're posting, um, you know, R is in a war against Python, please leave. Uh, most of the time I do things in R, but not exclusively, so my stack is normally sort of in order of commonality, um, R, C++, Python, and Java. Java, because HDFS. I'm sorry. That wasn't to you, that was to, like, 15-year-old me who had hopes and dreams and wanted to achieve things and is now seeing his future self right, Charlie. <laughs> so most of the time I use R, but it's the right tool for the job, right? So there's actually a really good example from uh, just the last couple of weeks, which is we have a log system called uh, Cirrus Search, which is built on top of uh, Lucene. It outputs big log files, big, poorly parsed and poorly sanitized log files, like four gigs at a time every day is in just, that's compressed. It's about 36 gigs when you untar it. And so I have to take these and pass them and turn them into something useful because they're not in HDFS yet and they're not sampled and we actually need that data. And the log lines are so badly formatted that what you're basically doing, if you want to extract a value, is running a regular expression over each row and then you know doing extraction. It's horrible, right? If I was trying to do this in R, I'd be in trouble. If I was trying to do this in C++, I'd also be in trouble because we don't have a version that supports the regex headers yet. So I use Python because Python is the right tool for a job. Generally, when it comes down to it, my approach to things is if I've got a static data set or I know how big it is and it's not you know, 36 gigs, use R. Um, if I need to stream through it, use Python. Um, and it's as, as simple as that. Like, they, they are diff very different languages with very different um, foci, and using both of them is, at least for me, the best outcome. I have gripes about Python, but I have gripes about every language, so. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you're doing a podcast as well, right? And it's uh, our podcast. Can you yes. talk about that? Um, so it's called Our Talk. We're recording the... Technically the second, but the first, because it's the first one we're releasing, and R is one indexed, um, episode uh, next week. Um, it's hosted by myself, uh, Mikhail Popov, who's a neuroscientist and R nerd, and um, actually, as of a couple of weeks ago, my sort of deputy at Wikimedia, except around machine learning, then I'm deputy Mikhail. 
Jasmine Dumas, who is a um, student and uh, GSOC participant and honored, and Kara Wu and uh, Ted Hart sort of dropping in and out and doing their thing. While we're mostly doing this, I think, because we all wanted there to be in our podcast and there wasn't. The the I, I sort of idly threw the idea out on Twitter a few weeks before deciding to kick it off and got kind of a phenomenal response um, from a lot of people being like, that would be perfect, just put it into 20 minutes so that I can listen to it in my commute. And, and so we decided to kick it off. The first episode clocked in at 60 minutes because we all like talking. So there's some work to be done. Um, so yeah, first episode's coming out next week. We're hopefully going to be talking to David Smith about the uh, from Revolution Analytics about the R Consortium launch. I don't know for sure yet. If not David, we'll have someone similarly interesting. Um, and at some point we need to get either one of you two on as well. Because one of my big focuses and one of the things I'm really fascinated about is uh, it feels like most of the R community is dominated by biostatisticians, which is not a bad thing. It's awesome because biostatistics is fascinating. But I've always wondered, like, what about the R physicists or the R information security people or the R electrical engineers? Do these people exist? Can we find the one person in that crowd and, like, drag them out and ask them why there are more of them and see what we can do to help? Great question. Yeah, that is actually. I, actually, that I think that, that that that'll be a great the series of great shows as you find individuals in different disciplines who are doing some of this stuff and, and being able to communicate that. Yeah, it's gonna be fun. So, uh, is there anything that we haven't covered that you wanted to say to the 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 masses of the data driven security podcast community? Not that I can think of, except that you should all be following Infosec Taylor Swift on Twitter. <laughs> oh gosh, no! Uh, don't don't encourage them. No, oh gosh. So, Oliver, do you have any events coming up? Any traveling or any anything coming up? So, I'll be talking at Earl 2015. That's the Effective Applications of the R Language Conference uh, in Boston in October. On actually the suite I've been working on, the sort of big web tools set of things and how they fit together and how you can use them to to analyze access log data, uh, which I'm pretty psyched about because I haven't. I don't think I've ever given a talk that's just the whole thing before. I've just been like, you want to handle URLs really fast, use this thing, here's why. Other than that, I think that's the only upcoming thing of which I'm aware of. I'm sure the work will spring something on me at the last minute. Great. Actually, the, the Earl talks are going to be more lightning than, than talk, I, th I think, too, given mm -hmm. that they're all 30 minutes each. So it's going to be an interesting, interesting one. And yeah. Bob, you're, you're going to be there as well, right? Bob? I, I, I will be there as well talking about how we produce the Data Breach Investigations Report. Ah, great topic. I may try to make that. I may try to be out in Boston for that. It's on October? Yep. Try and get someone else to pay for it. Well, I'll do that, definitely. Good. I, one of the, my horrible discoveries was getting the email that was like, you're a speaker, congratulations, you get in free on the day that your talk is. Yes. I. Oh, I, you don't... You don't get the whole thing for free as a speaker. It's the weirdest. It's it's thirty minutes, so you get like you get thirty minutes to talk about your thing, and then you get like, oh, if you want to come the next day and learn stuff the next day, you got to pay for it, which is just totally strange to me. Yeah, talk about your thing and then attend a cocktail party. That that is the stuff you get for free. Yeah. It's wow. Really that's interesting. That's a that's a tough way to get speakers next year. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the thing I I don't find it that uncommon like I, I talk to academic conferences a ton right and they're normally um, they're normally you present your paper and then you pay and then it appears in proceedings of the blah 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 
Um, the thing that confused me was not that they were charging money for speakers, or that they it was that they were sort of half charging money for speakers. Like I'm used to either you're speaking, you get in free, or you're speaking, you pay money. Not you're speaking, you get in free except when you don't. That that was the bit that confused me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Oliver, thank you so much for joining us. It was great having you on. No problem, no safety.